Hi, I'm Don Cameron. And I'm Amanda Branch. We're your co-hosts for an intellectual property law podcast series brought to you by Breskin Par LLP. You can find our episodes at breskinpar.com slash podcast. Go there and you can access all the episodes and additional information on each topic. This is the second part of a two-part podcast on patents, computers, and artificial intelligence. A little while ago, two of our colleagues, Paul Horble and Paul Blizzard, did a webinar on patents and artificial intelligence. One of our listeners was Dan Harrison of Salesforce. He contacted both Pauls, and that resulted in an interesting conversation regarding Dan's experience with the patent process. We asked them to have that conversation again, and this podcast is the result. Paul Horrible is a partner, lawyer, and patent agent in our Toronto office. He's a member of the firm's Electrical and Computer Technology Group and is the chair of the Financial Technology Group. Much of his practice is involved in securing patent protection for high-tech and fintech clients. Paul Blizzard is an associate lawyer and member of our Electrical and Computer Technology and Artificial Intelligence Practice Groups. Before going to law school and learning how to draft patents, Paul received his Bachelor of Science in Computer Engineering at Queen's University and worked for over a decade in software engineering, web development, e-commerce, artificial intelligence, and clean tech. We spoke with Dan and both Pauls from their home offices in or near Toronto. Dan, what have you found to be your favorite way to introduce your invention to a patent agent when you want an application to be drafted? The prior art search means that even though I think something might be novel and worthy of a patent, doesn't always mean it is. So one of the things that I've learned is not to go overboard in writing long content. It's really about getting the, con- the message across. So a couple of paragraphs, maybe two pages. I'm not a, I don't like taking the time to draw the diagrams, but it really does help get that message across. So if I can do a couple of diagrams, even on a whiteboard and then take a picture of them, it helps share why I think something is novel. I put that in writing and send it off to the patent team who will then come back to me Uh, Tell me whether it's unique enough to be worthy of putting in uh, a lot of work into writing it up. One of the things when it ultimately does get submitted, uh, one of the things we talked about is you get the idea back with all the legalese around it. It's kind of like reading Shakespeare. You send in this cool, nifty idea and you get something written back in a very legal-focused document that sometimes can be quite long and you really start to understand just how complex the job is for the patent team to take what was a spark of an idea and maybe a couple of sentences on a page to be worthy of a submission for a patent. Uh, so I really respect the work that uh, Paul and Paul have done in the past and the, how much work goes into it. It's a really intensive process, but as an inventor for myself, it's coming up with the idea and just writing it down in a couple of pages at most. So. I think I think that's a good approach. And speaking as the person who has to read the inventor disclosures, I think that's a that's a good target. Um, just a couple of pages, uh, sometimes even a couple of paragraphs that describe the the core of the idea, or you know what exactly has been invented here. Um, you know we, what goes into a patent application is quite a lot. There's as you know, Dan, there are a number of uh, sections to a patent application. You have um, the drawings, which you mentioned, we, we do want to have some drawings that can be flowcharts. In the case of software, we typically have a system diagram and, and some flowcharts describing how 
data comes in and how it gets uh, chewed up and how it gets spit out. Um, and then, of course, we have really the, the heart of the patent application or the heart of the patent, the most important part of the patent is the claims. And that's really where we start drafting. And the claims are all about protecting that new idea, um, you know, setting up the, the fences that surround this new idea. What do we want to protect and keep others from doing? Uh, so we really start from there and work backwards often. And to, to be able to prepare those claims, we need to have a clear picture of, uh, you know, first of all, what is the invention? And secondly, how does it actually differ from what else came before? Uh, which is another, say of saying, another way of saying, how is this new? So if those two pages or, or those few pages that you prepare uh, help us understand that, 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 that's really, you know, getting us a big leg up on drafting the rest of the application. And then, of course, uh, uh, the, the rest of the application is about, uh, you know, describing in enough detail the invention so that someone of ordinary skill in that area would be able to create, uh, make, and use that same invention. So um, we do need to eventually dig down into the details and describe it in, in a lot of detail. But uh, at least initially for preparing the claims, really all we need to know is, you know, what is the thing, how does it work, and how does it differ from what else is out there? Just curious, how many examples are valuable like the, the more examples the better or if i if just pick one that really spells it out how many examples do you like to see when you start putting this stuff together well i don't think that there's a necessarily a, a hard and fast rule for how many there should be i think uh, you know if there if there's a if it's an invention where there's really only one use for it or one example or one one uh, case scenario that you've come up with and that's fine uh, but if you can think of others, that's helpful too, because it helps us to frame the claims differently to capture all of those examples. Um, otherwise, we have to start thinking about, you know, how else could this thing be used? Um, and we we do that all the time, but it's helpful to us to have additional examples. Of course, you don't want those examples to be too far-fetched either. We want them to be realistic. And um, so it's really just a question of, you know, have you considered these examples? Uh, of, you know, do you have these examples ready at hand? Um, and if you have them, great. Uh, it's great to describe them. But I wouldn't be too worried about um, going through the exercise of dreaming up additional examples if if they don't readily present themselves. Yeah, I think that following on Paul's point, um, in terms of examples, it's 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 kind of important to ask uh, ask the question: Where could this invention? You know, if someone was going to invent invent around, or if someone was going to um, add their own um, inventive ideas on top, where would likely places be? So if there is a particular piece of the structure of the invention that could be easily replaced or um, or could have other um, strategies employed to sort of remove or change, those are those are examples that that are very helpful. Um, and and more generally, one of the ways to look at it is as a as a potential infringer finding this future patent, um, looking for uh, how they might try to engineer around it and try to make the claims as strong as possible from a perspective of someone who uh, who would encounter this in the wild and and is hoping to to uh, practice a similar invention or or the, the same invention. Yeah, maybe if I could pitch in yeah, as I, a non a non patent drafter, uh, from what I've observed of patent drafting people, is they're very good at gently cross examining the inventor to say, does it have to be this? Do you have to have that? Couldn't you use something else, or what else could you use? And and that way you whittle down the the components of the invention down to its 
bare necessities, if you will, or its essential elements in a politest way as you can. And sometimes the inventors themselves are surprised by saying, yeah, there is a much simpler concept, general concept beneath this particular thing I've made. And yeah, maybe it could be used for something else or, or I could use other things to, to execute it. So that's polite, I think that's polite, right. cross, that's... polite cross-examination rather than the impolite cross-examination litigators do. I think, Don, I think that's exactly right. I think our job as a patent uh, drafter is to uh, identify the kernel of the idea. What is the core of the invention and how do we protect that? And not necessarily every every last implementation detail. And I think that's something inventors often have a tough time with because they're familiar with what is uh, to them the best implementation of this idea. Whereas we're not necessarily worried about having every bell and whistle in the patent or at least not claimed in the patent necessarily. We're more concerned with getting a broader, um, uh, broader scope of protection, which means that you know we're more worried about getting the skeleton of the idea protected rather than um, the you know the the whole thing all dressed up with all the all the fancy clothes that uh, inventors will eventually you know uh, will be selling to the public. It's challenging because I think another part of it is trying to challenge the assumptions that are implied in the disclosure from the inventor. So one of the other things I find a lot is uh, kind of pushing inventors to dis provide further information about parts uh, that may seem in and of themselves kind of trivial, but I think that there's often the opportunity to, to look for some assumptions that can be uh, provided, that can be changed or, or, or could be used in a way to, uh, to explain the invention in a more detailed and complete way. Software is never fully finished. How do you deal with an invention that's developing and changing shape over time? Well, that's a that's a really good question. Um, the The reality is that most technology is a moving target. Um, inventors very rarely sit on their laurels after inventing something and just wait uh, for the for the money to roll in. So they're constantly working and developing their their technology, their inventions. Um, and so, you know, the answer to that is really to keep filing new applications, as self-serving as that may sound, coming from a patent lawyer. Um, I think the 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 important thing is to think about um, what is your existing patent application covering. And going back to our earlier discussion about the claims and what the claims actually protect, we want the claims to be drafted in a way that that protects as much as possible. They're they're drafted broadly so that they capture more than just that one. Um, example that the inventor is, uh, has developed and is planning to sell. So, but when when the claims no longer cover that invention, you know, there's been some new development that isn't adequately described in the earlier patent. Um, then that's the time to start thinking about, um, you know, do we need to file a new application to protect this new development? Um, and there are different ways to do that. Uh, one of the most common ways is to uh, file successive applications. So they may be relatively similar. There may be parts of the applications that are shared, uh, but as and when you develop new bits of technology, you file a new application. And um, that means describing that additional bit of technology, um, developing new claims that, that protect that bit of new technology, and then filing a new application. We often, uh, I, we often have the situation where uh, it, it, there's a technology that's being developed very quickly or it, it, the inventors come to us at, a, at an early stage of developing the technology. So they have the idea, they may have a prototype in mind, but it may not have been built yet and they may not be sure that it's going to work as they, they hope that it will. Um, and so, you know, 
we want to protect the idea. We want to get that patent application filed. So we'll, we'll prepare a patent application based on what we know at the time. Uh, but as and when they add new features or as and when they tweak the design so that it works better, um, we'll, we'll revise the application or add to the application and file a new one. And with the pat provisional patent application approach, uh, you're able to do that relatively cost effectively. The cost of the application is quite low um, and the filing requirements are, are reduced. And as long as you get it all done within about a 12 month period, um, you're able to do that. You're able to successively add new features without sacrificing uh, protection. So that's, uh, that's one approach. There are of course others and, and every situation is different, but that's one that's commonly found, uh, particularly with technologies that are being developed uh, actively and where they're at an early stage. I think an important detail as well is to consider whether or not the invention at that particular point in time when you're drafting the provisional application is is capable of sufficient uh, detail. Uh, one of the challenges is also that in terms of describing advancing uh, software technologies is that you, you, you want to describe each new part in sufficient detail uh, to allow you to create claims. And at the same time, you want to avoid the risk of uh, creating prior art in the future for yourself. So a good example would be if you're in the middle of developing a particular technology, A, um, and it has a detail that you, uh, B, that you want to include. You want to make sure that um, when you prepare and document the invention that you, you don't want to disclose B insufficiently because there could be the potential of generating prior art if the application publishes and it may be problematic to yourself in the future if you are interested in, in building a patent application around the functionality that is in that detail of B. Yeah, I think Paul, you, re you raise an, a really good point, which is uh, the problem of a prophetic disclosure where uh, you have an idea, you have an idea of something you might do in the future, but you haven't really fleshed it out and you're not entirely sure how or whether it will work. Um, and so in those situations, it's uh, you want to avoid drafting an application that that contains those examples if you plan to come back to them, you know, in the near future, in the medium term, I suppose, in the next couple of years. Uh, because that that prophetic disclosure uh, may end up uh, proving a hurdle to yourself because uh, your own application may end up being cited against you as an example of an earlier disclosure, even if it doesn't have the detail that's necessary to actually make it work, um, it it may still hurt you. So some there have been instances where um, you know the inventors have come to us and they they have uh, one invention, they have some ideas on how they'll improve it in the future. And there may be circumstances in which we say, you know what, maybe we take out this this example of or this this thought about what you'll do in the future because you want to have some more time to think about it and make it work. And th there's a balancing act there between being the first one to disclose it, um, and but not disclosing so little that it's not actually helpful to you in the future when you try to protect it. So um, uh, it's, it's something that you need to revisit on a regular basis. And another interesting aspect that we can also talk about is um, in terms of software, often there there really is two two components of, of protection that you're looking at. One and on one side is going to be drafting uh, and filing a patent application that describes the invention and how it can be practiced. But the other side is there are there are parts of that invention that will 
necessarily need to remain secret. So part of the other um, challenge with with doing this type of development is is finding the things that uh, the clients will want to keep secret. And uh, just some background: um, a trade secret uh, refers to valuable confidential information. Uh, a good example that is often used is uh, the Coca-Cola formula or other types of recipes that are used. Um, the requirements for a trade secret are that uh, the information is not generally known, uh, that it's economically beneficial to the person who owns it, and that there are reasonable efforts that are taken by um, an individual, by the owner, to stop the information from becoming general, generally known. So that's really interesting. In fact, one of my challenges with patents from the very early days when I started was patent trolls, or as you guys like to call them, non-practicing entities. And the whole concept that if I start to put something in to get early disclosure, um, am I allowing somebody else to take that, build on it, and then prevent me from taking what I thought was going to be a natural progression? So the whole concept of the consortiums that are starting to show up around the ability for companies to work together to help make sure that technology is available uh, at a reasonable growth rate, uh, particularly in technology, is something that's quite interesting. Uh, and I know particularly in the high-tech space, there is a lot of focus on the new high-tech innovation alliance and things like that to help make sure that companies can feel that in a fast-paced world of AI and software that you can start disclosing those things to protect yourself, but you're not going to have it used against you. But there's a lot of uh, conversations around that that maybe we can have a follow-on podcast specifically around that. Dan, I think you're right. We could probably go on for hours talking about this, and, and maybe someday we will, but, but for now... Dan, thank you very much for these insights. Paul and Paul, likewise, thank you for yours. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and an honor to uh, join you on the conversation around patent. Thank you. Thanks, Don and Dan. Uh, I echo Dan's sentiment. It's been a pleasure to speak about these topics. And uh, as you suggest, we could probably go on for hours on this topic or several others. Yeah, uh, thank you, Amanda and Don, and especially thank you, Dan, for uh, for giving us your time and for um, providing us your insights and experience on the inventor's perspective. Our guests today have been Dan Harrison of Salesforce and Paul Horrible and Paul Blizzard of Restaurant Park. Information on this episode should not be taken as legal advice. Breskin and Park professionals, especially Paul Horrible and Paul Blizzard, would be pleased to speak to you about patents and artificial intelligence. You can subscribe to our podcast by visiting breskinpar.com slash podcast. There you can access all the episodes, additional information on each topic, and stay on top of what's happening with IP in Canada. And listen to the original webinar that Paul Horrible and Paul Blizzard did that got Dan Harrison interested in talking to us. So subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to your podcast. That way, you'll never miss an episode. It's free, and it notifies you when there's a new episode. Thank you for listening to today's episode presented by Breskin and Parr LLP. Until next time.